If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What did the word pharaoh mean? How did you become an ancient Egyptian king? And what was that beard all about? In this episode, Joyce Tildesley, Professor of Egyptology at the University of Manchester, answers some of the big questions about ancient Egyptian pharaohs. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted via Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Putting the questions to Joyce was podcast editorial assistant Emily Briffitt. Hello and welcome to you, Joyce. It's lovely to have you here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So today we're going to be talking about ancient Egyptian pharaohs. With that, I guess the best place to start would be with this question from Hannah Law Ridgely from Instagram, which is, what does the word pharaoh mean? And I guess sort of to tie in with that, where does the title come from? When was it first used? And was it just an ancient Egyptian thing? Well, it comes from the ancient Egyptian meaning great house. But what it actually means is king. And it's a word that we use a lot to describe the king of Egypt, but the Egyptians themselves didn't necessarily use it. It's a bit like, I think, say in the UK, we would might say Buckingham Palace when we mean the court or, or you know the royal family in general. But it's somehow, in our minds, it's become the title that we give to the king of Egypt. But actually what I always tell my students, because pharaoh is quite a difficult word to spell, I always say you can use the word king just as easily as you can use the word pharaoh, and it means exactly the same thing. We do find it used in ancient Egypt, but not all the time and not by all kings. When did the official time of the Egyptian pharaohs start? Yes, um, the first person I think that we can really say ruled all of Egypt was about 3100 BCE. Before that, Egypt obviously was there, but it was a land that was made up of independent cities and their satellite communities. So there'd be a lot of, of cities along the Nile and in the Nile Delta, and then someone came along and united the country into one land that we would today call Egypt. And so that, I think, is when we would say that the first king or the first pharaoh came on the throne. And from that point onwards, it really continued up to the point of Cleopatra, who died in 30 BCE. So pretty much for 3,000 years, this title, king, if not pharaoh, there was one in Egypt. Um, no real ever determination to break away from having a king of Egypt. Linking into that, 
We have this question from Sikander Kamal on Facebook. Well, it's an extraordinarily long period of time. So how many pharaohs do we actually see in that time? How many ruled Egypt? Well, it's very difficult to tell. I know you'd think that would be very straightforward, wouldn't you? But we don't have the records. We can't trace king after king after king. For some periods, we have really good records and some periods we don't have any records at all. But I tried to do a quick calculation and at least 300. And I'm not making excuses for not being able to count them properly, but also there are some periods where we have two kings on the throne at the same time because Egypt is split in two and we have rival kings in different places. So that confuses it. And sometimes we have kings who rule together. We have co-regencies. So I would say at least 300, possibly more. Um, But they're not all related. It's not like one huge family that's going on and on and on. There are breaks in the family ruling Egypt, but the title itself does carry on. That's an extraordinary amount of people for that time period, really. Well, yes, although if you think about their queens, they each had many, many queens, so there are even more queens of Egypt than there are kings of Egypt. Why do we think this time of the pharaohs lasts so long? It's a a really interesting question. I think the answer is that the, the kings told everybody that they were indispensable. They told everybody that they were the only people in Egypt who could communicate with the gods. And the ancient Egyptians felt that the gods did everything they were their science if you like almost you know you know anything you can think of the explanation for it if it didn't have an obvious explanation it was the gods that did it so if you can convince the people that you're essential that you're the one person who can talk to the gods and one person who can make the gods happy then it's very unlikely that 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 people are going to try and get rid of you occasionally we do know that people did assassinate kings it did happen not very often It's not the sort of things the Egyptian would write down either. But it did happen, we know this. But every time it happened, nobody tried to replace the kings with a democracy. They wanted to to get rid of one king to put another king on the throne. I I think really that they just couldn't imagine life without a king. Even their afterlife was ruled by a king, King Osiris. It was just unimaginable to them to live any other way. I guess this really ties in again to another question we have about the power of the pharaohs. So Frank Shepard on Facebook and several other of our listeners have asked, actually, did they have absolute power? Were they involved in absolutely all of the governance of the the state, I guess? Yeah, I would say they had absolute power and that there was no, certainly no one more powerful and they were so important. You know, we, we feel that people couldn't really even look at them. Most people had to bow low when they're in the presence of, of the pharaoh. All the people around them defined themselves by the presence of the king. So the queen was actually known as the king's wife. That was her title. And courtiers would always express how close they were or to the king. You know, their duties would revolve around the king. Um, how involved they were in things... It's a slightly different question because obviously they couldn't do everything. Egypt is a huge land and it's a long, thin land. It's a bit awkward shaped to rule. And they weren't only in charge of like the politics. They were also in charge of the religion and also the army. So obviously they couldn't do everything. They had to have deputies. They had to have priests and generals and civil servants who worked for them. But ultimately their word was law. So if they said do something, you did it. And you did it quite quickly, I imagine. We've spoken a bit about how important the pharaoh was to their people. But what do we know about the inverse relationship? Did they treat their subjects well? Do we know about how they, the people, were treated by the pharaoh? There's kind of like a tier of of, of levels. Some people say that 
social organization in ancient Egypt is a social pyramid, if you can imagine it like that. So the bottom tier, the bottom level of the pyramid is like the peasants. And then you, going up, you'd have like middle classes and then you'd have the royal family and the elite and the royal family and the, the pharaoh, the king, right at the top. To be honest, I don't think he had much to do with the ordinary people. I think he would associate with his court, the the, the, the um, high-ranking civil servants and priests and someone that was surrounded him, and it would sort of filter down. So I don't think he particularly had much to do with them. If you did something bad and you came to the attention of the pharaoh, for example, if you were a criminal or were captured in war, became a prisoner of war, or just an enemy, then he would fight you, he would imprison you, he would send you off to mines to work or the quarries to work. So those people didn't get particularly well treated. But I think the ordinary people really didn't have a great deal to do with the pharaoh at all. We've had another question here from Lindsay Densing on Instagram. She's asked, who was the most loved pharaoh and do we have a most notorious pharaoh? And why were (laughs) they the favourites or not favourites? Well, it's very difficult for us to tell because, of course, throughout um, dynastic Egypt, from the time of the the first king in in about 3100 BC, right the way to the end, most people didn't write things down. Most people couldn't read and write. So knowing what those people thought about anyone is really, really hard. All we have is the archaeology. Basically, what we tend to have is their graves, actually. And that doesn't really tell us anything. And the people who were close to the pharaoh and who could read and write, of course, they always wrote excellent things about the pharaoh because they would be very foolish not to. So it's very, very hard to get an idea of who was the most loved pharaoh. What we can see is we have some pharaohs like Ramesses II, Ramesses the Great, for example, and he went around telling everyone that he was he was the most important pharaoh and he did the best deeds and he killed the most enemies and he put his name all over Egypt. But that's because he's a very long-lived king and he had enough time to do it. And he gives the impression that he was well-loved, but of course we can't really tell how true that is. Um, we just don't know. So is it mostly based off of just the archaeology then? You don't quite have the written text as you would with other periods. It's difficult because we're very, very interested in in, in Egypt's kings um, and we would like to know more about them. But yes, we have the archaeology and the monuments that they leave us. We can use those. And they do tell stories. And um, There's a female pharaoh because being a pharaoh wasn't just a male thing. A female could be a pharaoh too. She has left us a, a temple which has got carved stories of, of her reign on it. So we can find out what happened in her reign, but it's not as detailed as we like. Most of the writings that the pharaohs leave us are very formulaic. You don't know how much to believe them. You know, if a king said that they went off to battle and won the battle, do you believe it? Or is that really what they're telling their people back home? Because they're not going to say they lost a battle. No no king's going to do this. And of course, nobody in Egypt would know. So it's really difficult for us. We don't have like private letters, um, private diaries, anything like that, really, that would help us to understand these people. And the further back in time you go, the harder it gets to understand what they were like as people. It's still fascinating, and we're still looking for these elusive writings. Even Tutankhamun's tomb, which was full full of stuff, lots and lots of archaeology in there, but very few written documents that that weren't formulaic, that weren't just standard um, texts that were copied out and put into his tomb. So we are really struggling. But for me, and I think for lots of Egyptologists, this makes it such an interesting subject to, to study because it's like a detective story. You're piecing together evidence and trying to work out what happened and what people were actually like. I want to go back to one of the points you made there. I think one point that's really kind of caught people's interest is about female pharaohs. So could you maybe tell us a little bit more about the female pharaohs? Were 
ancient Egyptians more open to this idea of having a female ruler? And were they respected more so than other places, perhaps? Yes, it's an interesting question. It was decided right, I think, at the beginning of the dynastic age that it was possible for a woman to rule Egypt. It wasn't ideal. The ideal succession would be from the the current king or pharaoh to his son or to someone he adopted in, in the role of his son. It didn't necessarily actually have to be a son by birth, but they would they might bring someone into the royal family and they could be the, the next successor. But just occasionally it was necessary for a woman to rule Egypt because there was no obvious male successor. This only really happens a few times. Sometimes the female pharaoh, the female king, is well accepted. Uh, well, during their reigns, they're all accepted. Yes, I'm being misleading here. During their reigns, I mean, Hatshepsut, the female pharaoh that most people talk about, was on the throne for 20 years. And she built some beautiful monuments. And she, obviously, Egypt seems to have flourished during her reign. Afterwards, when they've died, then history doesn't tend to look quite so kindly on them. And Hatshepsut was pretty much cut out of history so that we wouldn't know that she was there if we hadn't got her temple to tell us all her life story. But certainly at the time, they have no problem at all. Um, Once you've been crowned king, it doesn't matter who you were before. The, The act of being crowned means that you'll be acceptable to the people from that point onwards. And once you've been crowned king, there's no going backwards. So you then are king or pharaoh. This is why we we tend to say female pharaoh rather than than saying queen because queen in English has different meanings and the queen in Egypt is very different to the the king or pharaoh so we tend to say female pharaoh to make it clear that it's not just a strong queen it's actually someone who's gone that extra stage and become the king. That's really interesting to see because obviously we don't quite see that in other places It brings us on to talk more about the different dynasties and also things like line of succession. What was the makeup of the Egyptian ruling elite? And did this sort of change over time? Because I know you mentioned people could rise up from the ranks. What tended to happen is that you would have a king on the throne and then ideally he would have a consort, a queen who was the prominent queen, but he'd also have other queens as well. But it was the queen consort, the chief queen, her son would be expected to inherit the throne. And that would be the ideal succession. It didn't always work. Sometimes they had to look for an outsider to rule Egypt. Um, Sometimes even it would be a woman. But most of the time, this is how it happened. We now divide the kings into dynasties. The Egyptians didn't necessarily do this themselves. So they wouldn't necessarily recognise the system that, that we use. It was something that was put in place right at the end of the dynastic age when the Ptolemaic kings were starting to study ancient Egyptian history. They wanted to understand the history of the land that they were ruling, which was already really, really old. So they divided up the history for us. Um, And we've kept it because it's very convenient for us. On the whole, a dynasty is a family, but it's not always. It's really a group of people who are linked together by an ideal rather than by blood. So most of the people within that dynasty will be father, son, then son, and son, and so on. But sometimes someone's adopted in. Sometimes a king can cross over, so it could be born into one dynasty and rule in the next dynasty. It's not as black and white as people think it is. People hear the word dynasty and they think, oh, that's a family. And it's not. It's more confusing than that. But as I said, the Egyptians themselves wouldn't recognise this system. They recognised all of Egypt's kings as their ancestor kings. So if you were the king of Egypt, you felt that you were related to every single king that had gone before, which is clearly not true. They, they weren't. But they like to say that they were. And they would occasionally write about this on temple walls and so on. They have images of the current king 
worshipping the names of as many previous kings as he could write on the wall to show that they were all connected together. Because basically they regarded the living king as being the continuation of all previous living kings. And the dead king, the king of the dead Osiris, was a, was an amalgamation of all the previous kings of Egypt. So when you were crowned king, you became kind of part of a long line of kings. It, it completely transformed you, stopped being a purely mortal person, a purely human person, and became this sort of intermediate being between the king and the gods. I'm going to jump here a little bit. It might seem like a jump, at least. But actually, was this learning about their history, was this sort of part of the training to be pharaoh? What did they learn? What did they study? Again, it's difficult to know what they actually studied to be pharaoh, but we have got some indications. Um, and I've been looking at actually Tutankhamun's childhood to see how he was brought up to be a pharaoh. Um, we know that that some kings were trained in military arts, for example. So we know that that happened. Tutankhamun has writing palettes in his tomb. We think that he was trained in reading and writing as well. And it seems that there was a system of tutors so that a child would, would be born, obviously, and would, would get through infancy and then would pass from through a series of tutors, kind of attached to the royal palace, who would teach him different things. And eventually if all went well, they would become pharaoh. The problem is you didn't quite know who was going to become the next king because there was very high child mortality in those days. So probably several sons born to the king and queen would be trained in the same way. And then eventually one of them would succeed to the throne. It wasn't necessarily the eldest son because he might die before he got to the throne, which would be very sad. So Tutankhamun probably had an elder brother, but he was trained just in case. And as it turned out, he came to the throne was pretty lucky for him to have been trained really yes 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 I, I guess in, in the ancient world you never really knew what was going to happen so you had to be very very cautious and you would make sure that you had an heir in place and a few spares as well just just in case the worst happened bringing it back to this idea of sort of dynasties and succession how did marriage work because you hear a lot about multiple wives and this is one of the questions we've had from a chat called Mikkel from Poland um, on Instagram could you tell us a bit more about the wives or the husbands I guess yes sure um most Egyptians during the dynastic age they just had one one husband one wife it was expected that everybody would marry because the marriage kind of created an economic unit that could function very well. But um, you didn't marry, if you're a man, more than one wife at a time. Quite often people married two or three times, but that's because the original wife died um, and then they would marry again. But the royal family is different because the king has many wives. He, he has one chief wife, the king's great wife, who is the consort, and it will be her children who we see in official art. So if there's a picture of the royal family, it will be the king, that queen, and her children. But they also had harems. And inside the harems, there were many different sorts of women. Um, there were women who were foreign-born and who came to Egypt to marry the king to create a bond with that foreign country. So if you were a foreign prince, you would send your daughter to Egypt, marry the, marry the king, and you have a bond there be between yourselves. But those women don't tend to go on to be consort because I think they didn't want foreign-born or half-foreign-born children to inherit the throne. But it was an important diplomatic role of, of these princesses to come to Egypt and marry. Interestingly, we don't find Egyptian princesses marrying outside Egypt. That seems to be because Egypt was the dominant nation at the time, so they could demand that people sent daughters to them, but they didn't have to send daughters outside Egypt. And we actually have some letters from kings who are pleading to be sent an Egyptian bride 
as a, a sort of reciprocal bride for the, the sister that they've sent, and it just doesn't happen. So, and then we have um, other people in the harem who we assume that were um, just picked because the king wanted to marry them. Highborn women. Sometimes, if a king has two or three sisters, because we could probably come on to this in a minute, he he might marry all of them, but only one could be the queen consort. So the rest will be in the harem, and the harem palace. It's a really interesting institution. We don't know as much about them as we'd like because we don't really have the archaeology to to support our guesswork. But it's also got um, the king's sisters and any other royal women who have nowhere else to go will also be in this harem community. And these are quite large. And the women come over, the the foreign brides come over also with um, servants as well. So they also go into the harem. So we have these quite large institutions full of royal women who are close to the king, but not just as close as his um, his consort, the chief queen. She is close to him and his actual mother will also be close to him. So you're exactly right. That is the next question on my list is we've had many questions about the ideas of inbreeding. So one from Yvette Rickholt on Facebook and Kath Casper on Instagram. What was the effect of this inbreeding in the royal dynasties and how much of it was there? Is it just speculation that there was lots of it or do we know this for certain? It's it's absolutely certain that kings married their sisters and their half-sisters. We know this. But it wasn't something they had to do and not every king did it. And I think there are probably enough breaks in in the um, royal family that this happened for it not to become an absolutely massive problem. Um, Because when we start to look at it, we can see that actually, although, yes, this king married his sister and the next king married his sister, the king after this didn't. And it kind of resets the clock a bit. Um, So, yes, it happened, but it didn't happen perhaps as often as we we think it did. So what the effect is, it's it's really difficult for us to tell these days Um, why they did it. We don't know, but there are several theories. One theory is that it cuts down the number of relations that the king has because he hasn't got any in-laws, if you like. So there's no no rival family sort of vying slightly for the throne. It it means the queen is is very loyal to the royal family because she's a member of that royal family. And it also means that the queen can be trained from childhood just as the king will be trained. Also, of course, the potential queens can be trained so they understand the role because the role of the queen is not just to marry the king. She also has her own duties to do and she needs to know how to do those as well. So to them, it made sense. But not all kings did it. Tutankhamun, possibly the most famous pharaoh, yes, he married his sister or his half-sister, but his father Akhenaten didn't and his father didn't. So you can see that that there are gaps there and it's enough, I think, to reset the, the genealogical clock and make sure that there's, that they're not as unhealthy as they might otherwise have been. But again, it's difficult for us to tell because they didn't know the problems that this would cause. Um, so they don't write about any particular difficulties. Again, we don't find it outside the royal family until much, much later on, right at the end of the dynastic age. Non-royal people start to do this as well, but much, much later on, it's not common apart from in the royal family. So I guess it's almost a little bit of, myth busting of actually turning around and go hold on you see a lot in pop culture there's a lot talked about that and it's turning around saying actually the thing is when the first people who realized this was happening who translated the text and realized that it was happening tended to be western scholars who were very strongly christian and they were they were very shocked by this and they looked for an explanation as to why these people were marrying their sisters or half-sisters 
And they came up with a theory that said that, well, they were doing it because they had to. They came up with a theory that the kingship, the pharaohship, if you like, passed down through the royal women. So to become a true pharaoh of Egypt, you had to marry the heiress who carried this kingship within her. So if you were born the son of a king, you would marry your sister because the kingness, the kingship, I don't know what to call it, the essence of kingness was in your sister. And the only way you could be properly a pharaoh was to marry your sister. So this theory developed because people were so uncomfortable with the idea of people marrying their own sisters and half-sisters. But we now know that this theory is not true because we have pharaohs who didn't marry their sisters and they were perfectly successful pharaohs. So clearly that's not the case. But it's something that's made people feel uncomfortable for a very long time. Whereas to the Egyptians, it was just what they did, I guess. Part of life, I guess. Yes, yes, yes. And possibly, of course, these children weren't brought up together. It's quite interesting that when we look at pictures of the royal family, we see the king and the consort, the queen consort, but we don't tend to see their sons. We tend to see just their daughters in family groups because sons are potential future pharaohs, future kings, and they don't appear in his family group. They will go on to have their own family groups. So it may well be that the sons are not brought up with the daughters. I mean, I know that from a biological point of view, this makes no difference. The problem is still there. But for maybe, you know, people don't tend to want to marry their sisters and brothers because they're very familiar with them and so on. But maybe these children weren't particularly familiar with each other either. They were raised separately. That's a really interesting point. I think you have that vision of a family unit together. Yes, yes, whereas that's not necessarily the case. Okay, so changing slightly from sort of the inbreeding side of things, can you tell us a little bit more about the daily life of a pharaoh? We've had this from Hannah Yari on Instagram. So what did they get up to? What what was their routine? We don't, again, I, I, I'm not making excuses, but we, we honestly don't really know. But one thing that struck me when I was thinking about this question is that we have um, a collection of papyruses which actually tell stories that the Egyptians told. And one of these stories is about um, a pharaoh called Snefru, who's quite an early on pharaoh. He's a pyramid building pharaoh. And what this tells us is that he was actually really, really bored and he didn't know what to do because presumably all the work had been done. So although he could do whatever he wanted, Actually, he was so bored that he didn't know what to do and he had to summon people to tell him what to do. And in the end, he decided he would ask the ladies of the court to row on the lake and he would sit there and watch them rowing up and down the lake for entertainment. Other stories we have tell us that kings had storytellers who told them stories. We imagine that they they played games and did things like that. But of course, they would have had work to do. It wasn't all leisure activities, but the extent to which they involved themselves in affairs, I think, would have varied from king to king. They would have also eaten very well. And I think there would have been a lot of ceremonial appearances, um, wearing splendid clothing, colourful clothing, going to temples, processing round. There's a city called Amarna that was built by a king called Akhenaten, and we have images of him and his consort and his daughters riding through the streets so that people can see him. But I think basically the answer is what he wanted. He could do what he wanted because nobody could tell him not to. Um, but most of them seem to have, have, have governed wisely and well, um, at least as far as we can say. But of course, if they were bad kings, we wouldn't know about it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Even the tombs we have, like Tutankhamun's tomb, we know where it is. But recently it's been suggested that it might be bigger than we thought and that there might be other tombs hidden behind the walls. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You spoke a little bit about like the ceremonial dress almost, about what they would wear when they would go out. Do we know what pharaohs wore, really? Were there any sort of standard items that you might expect? Because obviously now we sort of say about very traditional crown and I guess they had a similar item of dress. Well, they did. There are lots of Egyptian crowns and we can see these. We can see them in in art and we can see them in sculpture. But the thing is, it's really interesting. We haven't found any of these. There's not a single crown from a pharaoh um, throughout the dynastic age. So this mainly makes us wonder, is this because there was just one crown? And and I should say that when we see them wearing crowns, they're wearing a range of different crowns. It's not just one crown. There's a whole range. They're very different stylistically. They're all crowns of the king or pharaoh, but they, they, they look very different. Where are they? Was there just one crown um, that was passed from king to king of each type? Or is it that the king's crowns were maybe kept in local temples? So if he moved to a, to a city, he would visit the temple there and he would take the crown out and wear it in that city and then put it back. Did they even exist? This is a really interesting concept. Did these crowns exist? Or is it that something that the artists are showing us to show us that this is the king of Egypt, but actually they didn't actually physically have a crown i'm thinking here like in in christian art where you see a halo that shows that someone is a saint maybe these are symbols that show us that this is the king but he didn't actually wear the crown it's a really interesting mystery as to where these crowns are and what they represent but yes he had a crown um also quite often we see i mean they could wear different clothes but quite often we see the king in a fairly simple kilt um, with a bare chest, but with, with jewellery on it and wearing jewellery and, and sandals as well. So that would be the sort of basic royal clothing. From time to time, depending on the fashions, they'll also wear long garments, pleated garments and so on. Um, it's, it's very important to them, I think, that they have clean, sparkling white clothes. All the clothes were made from linen, pretty much all the clothes. Um, sometimes they would wear, though, an animal skin to show that they're a priest. That happens as well. But basically, linen clothing, fairly simple, but but beautifully made and, um, I think, recognisable. It was important to them in their art that they were recognised as the king because if people can't read and can't read what you've done, they will be able to recognise your image. So this is really the image that they wanted to project. I think along those lines, we've had this question on Instagram about the beard pharaohs seem to be depicted with a beard what does that represent what can you tell us about that one yeah we see this right from the very beginning the first king that we can identify as ruling egypt nama we've got images of him wearing this false beard and it's clearly false because it it, it it clips on um it's tied on onto the face so it's not real and also the female pharaoh Hatshepsut, also has the beard so it's clearly symbolic um it's not intended to look like a real you're not intended to think this is a real beard in any way you're intended to recognize it as the beard of the king of egypt and i think it's just a representation of kingship gods have beards too some gods not all gods again to represent who they are it's a status thing i would say 
Whether they actually had beards in real life, um, we don't know. We don't know, but this is a ritual beard. Presumably, on occasion, when they're performing rituals, they would indeed, just if they were wearing a crown, they would also wear a beard and they would carry a crook and flail. All these things are attributes of kingship. The interesting thing is that they go right the way back to the first king and they continue right the way through to the end. So when they designed their ideal of kingship, when they decided what a king should look like, that he should have this array of crowns, that he should have a beard, that he should carry crooks and flails on, they never really varied from it. And this makes it very easy for us looking at a scene to pick out who the king is, which I think is probably what they intended. Because we are like the ordinary Egyptian people. We can't read their writing either, or most of us can't. But we can pick out the king because of how he's presenting himself. This would have been very important to them. So it, it's a system that works well. Is this a similar sort of case? I think there's an association with the Egyptian style makeup. Is that also a, to have that similar sort of social status connection? Or is that more everyone wore it, that kind of thing? I think, again, it, the makeup is more or less for the elite, although we do um, have some indications that poorer people would wear it as well. Possibly, it's been suggested, the eye makeup anyway, as a way of reducing glare from the sun, that um, because it's a dark line under the eye, that it might slightly help medically. I'm not, I'm not sure if that would actually work. But certainly for the elite, the, the upper class, the wealthy Egyptians, cosmetics, shaving, um, wearing a wig, not wearing your real hair, all this sort of thing was really important. So when they died and they went to the tombs, they took these things with them so that they'd be, be able to continue wearing them and doing them in the afterlife. It's, it's interesting, actually, because the wigs, I should mention also, quite often when a woman in Egyptian art wears a wig, it's made very clear that she's wearing a wig because you can see her real hair on the forehead. It's, there's no attempt to hide the fact it's a wig. You're expected to know that, just as there's no attempt to pretend that the king's beard is an actual beard. A woman's wig is clearly a wig. They want they want you to know that, which is very interesting. I think that's really that is really interesting. It's, it, you'd have thought you'd wanted to almost cover it, but yes, yes, yes. But no, not. no, no. <laughs> apparently not. I'm going to jump here a second um, because I really like to point you picked up on there about their death and their tombs and that kind of thing. That's one of the top queries we get on internet searches: is where did the pharaohs actually live? Very interesting question, um, because we're very accustomed, certainly those of us who um, in the UK, to, to a king basically having a palace. But in ancient Egypt, yes, they had palaces, but they didn't have just one palace. Most kings had several palaces, and they spent a lot of their time, a lot of their reign, moving up and down the Nile, I think reminding people that they were there, because Egypt's a long, thin country, and it would have taken quite some time to sail from the north to the south. So they, they were on the move quite a lot and they would stay in either a palace or they would stay with someone maybe. So they're not. we shouldn't be looking for just one royal palace, one splendid palace, but, but a collection of palaces dotted along the Nile, depending where they were, they would stay there. I mean, occasionally you get some, some pharaohs who, Ramesses the Great, for example, builds a city, which he calls Per Ramesses, um, and there's a splendid palace there, but he doesn't just stay there. He also moves up and down the Nile and visits various different places. I think it would be important for them to be seen by everybody, not just by the local people at one place. The ceremonial show. Yes, yeah. yes. And of course, he's the, he's the head of every religious cult. So occasionally he'll want to go to local temples and perform rituals there. He can't perform every ritual because they have rituals every hour in, in all these temples and it's absolutely impossible for him to do everything. He has priests who will do that for him, but occasionally in the big state temples, I think he would want to turn up 
and do some of the rituals himself. Actually, this links to a question we've had from a chap called Code Kidography on Instagram. He's sort of asked a few questions about um, religion in the time and what effect did the pharaoh have on the religion of the region? Well, for most of the dynastic age, the, the vast, vast majority of the time, the king is the head of every single religious cult. We don't want to fall into the trap of saying that ancient Egypt had a religion. It's more like a whole lot of cults coexisting at the same time. There was nothing resembling a Bible or anything similar to that. And there was no code, religious code, that you had to stick to. So you couldn't be a heretic because there was actually no instructions to how you had to live your religious life. But you had state temples with state gods. And these state gods were dependent on the king for the offerings that the gods wanted. And the gods wanted regular offerings. He couldn't give every offering in every temple because it was too much for one person to do. So he had priests who did it for him. But technically... He was the head of every cult. And so when we see on temple walls people giving offerings, it's the king, even though we know that in real life it would have been the priest rather than the king. So so that's how it worked. But for the ordinary people, they didn't have much to do with this state religion. They would be more likely to worship local gods, their own local temples, much smaller scale gods and demigods. um, Gods, for example, associated with childbirth and health the actual the the division between the state temples and the the gods and and the deities worshipped by the ordinary people is is quite there's quite a big break there and we shouldn't assume for example sometimes people imagine that the big state temples like the Karnak temple people went to services there they don't the king goes there and his priests go there and they service the god they get the statue out of the god out of its um cupboard I suppose every night every morning and and wash the god and dress him and give offerings to him and and they attention during the day and they put him back to bed at night but the ordinary people don't do that the ordinary people only really have contact with the state gods when the gods process out of the temples so the king maintains all this and he ensures that all the gods of Egypt are happy and by doing this because the gods are happy with Egypt they will support Egypt and Egypt will be safe We have one king called Akhenaten who decides not to do this. He decides that he will only worship one god and he builds a city and he goes there and he worships one god. But his reign, it's over. He lasts about 17 years on the throne, then he dies. And after that, Egypt just reverts back to the old way of doing things. It doesn't continue. It didn't please the people. Um, it, It wasn't how they were used to doing things and they just reverted back to how they had been. Moving from temples to tombs, when did the pharaohs start being buried in the Valley of the Kings? Well, they start off by being buried um, in mud brick tombs right at the beginning of the dynastic age, and then they progress to pyramid building. And pyramid building goes on for a long time. Pyramid building is in the north of Egypt on the big flat deserts, because to build a pyramid, you can't really do it in a valley. It's, it's, It's not appropriate. You need a lot of space. When we get to what we call the New Kingdom, which again is a system that we have put in place, the Egyptians wouldn't have have said New Kingdom, which starts in about 1550 BCE, there's a change of view. The pyramids are huge, but they're very, very labour intensive. You need many, many thousands of people to build a pyramid. Yes, it's impressive, but it's also a massive signpost to where the king is buried. It's not particularly secure. You know, it's open to robbery and it's eating up a lot of resources. So the 
kings of the new kingdom decide that they will do something different. Instead of being buried in the north under pyramids, they will be buried in the south at Thebes, which is modern Luxor, if people know Luxor, um, in a place called the Valley of the Kings. And they will cut into the um, mountain and they will build what we call rock-cut tombs. So they tunnel into the, the, um, the, the, the mountain in Thebes and that's where they build their tombs. And that goes on for um, till the end of the New Kingdom. And then after that, the Valley of the Kings becomes insecure and the kings start building in the north again, but they don't build pyramids again. But the, I think the one that everyone remembers is Tutankhamun being buried in the Valley of the Kings, but he wasn't buried in a pyramid. I know a lot of people think that he was because we tend to associate the two, don't we? We tend to think Egypt, pyramid, Tutankhamun, and, but they don't go together. He's buried after the end of the Pyramid Age. So he has a rock-cut tomb in the Valley of the Kings and a, an associated temple where people would leave offerings for him, which would have been some distance away and which has now been lost, unfortunately, so we don't have that. From this, I think there's an association with live people or slaves being buried with the pharaohs. Um, this is one from Hastagram on Instagram, who they said, were they actually buried with the pharaohs? No. No, that's Hollywood. Um, you can see films where this happens. Um, there's, there's, I can't remember what it's called, but we, there's a film with Joan Collins where this happens. But no, this doesn't happen at all. A lot of people built the pyramids, um, but these people came. It was a sort of national service. They were summoned from villages and towns all over Egypt. They went to the pyramid building site. They built the pyramid for maybe three or four months. Then they went home again and another batch of people came in um, and it worked like that. But no, this, they certainly didn't um, kill the people when they buried the king. There was a stage before the pyramid building when the kings were buried at a place called Abydos, and this is right at the very beginning of the dynastic age. And we can see that round the royal tombs, which were not pyramids, they were mud brick tombs, sort of low flat tombs, that there were people buried who seem to have been buried at the same time as the king because their burials have the same roof. So it's just possible at the very beginning of the dynastic age that some kings were buried with retainers who might have either been killed or who killed themselves to accompany the king on his journey to the afterlife. But this was a very, very short-lived phenomenon. And certainly by the time you get to the pyramid age, there's no suggestion at all that that happened. They were, though, the pyramids were surrounded by tombs of the nobles who were close to the king, but these people weren't killed in any way. They, they just died natural deaths. I guess it's really difficult to sort of find the line because it's such a long period. You're trying you're trying to talk about several different times at one time. It is. It's a bit... I, I don't think people always re realise this because the art looks the same pretty much throughout and the image of the pharaoh looks the same. We tend to think it's all the same, but we wouldn't necessarily, if I was talking about British history, go back to, say, Roman Britain and, and Stonehenge and then talk about today. But we're doing that for ancient Egypt and there are very different, it, it evolves, it changes as time goes by, subtly, but it happens. There is, seems to be quite an obsession with the discovery of Tutankhamun and finding out about the pharaohs in sort of the modern age. So if we talk a little bit about maybe the recent discoveries and by recent, I mean, fairly, fairly long time, really. Um, but we've had one question about who's been the most recent find? Have we discovered anyone really recently? We have discovered some lesser known individuals who are kings that were at the beginning of the New Kingdom, just before the New Kingdom starts. 
but people haven't really been particularly interested in them because we don't know that much about them and they haven't got the treasure associated with them that Tutankhamun has, which has really attracted the public attention. But we've been able to slightly clarify some aspects of the history that was confused at that time that we didn't understand. The big one that people are interested in is Tutankhamun. He was discovered in 1922. But after Tutankhamun, there were also some kings discovered in the north of Egypt um, at a site called Tarnis, um, which have got far less attention. Again, they're not as spectacular as Tutankhamun. And they were discovered when the war was on, which I think detracted away from people weren't quite as interested because they had other things to worry about. But the really big one, the one that's always attracted interest is Tutankhamun. And I think that's because he was completely surrounded by grave goods. So it's not just him, but it's his grave goods as well and the whole package of it. And the fact that he was discovered after the First World War when when um, people were really looking for a, a, a story that would take them away from the grief of the war and the influenza epidemic that had followed, he became almost like um, a, a celebrity. Well, he was, he did become a celebrity. And he's just, once you become a celebrity, he's become even more of a celebrity as time's gone by. So that really is the one that people are interested in. But there are still some missing pharaohs and we haven't found everybody. Do we know how many are still are still unaccounted for? This is one by Kimberly Dresler on Instagram. Who haven't we found? Do we know? There must be quite a few. Yes, there's quite a few dotted throughout throughout the entire 3,000 years. The one that people are particularly, or the ones that people are particularly interested in are the Ptolemaic um, kings of Egypt who ruled from Alexandria, and in particular Cleopatra. People have been looking for Cleopatra for some time now and occasionally people might have seen television programmes looking for Cleopatra's body. We think that what happened is that they were buried in Alexandria and that that part of Alexandria then fell into the sea because Alexandria is a coastal city um, and lost beneath the Mediterranean. But um, there are other people who have different theories and think that she might have been buried elsewhere and have been looking for her body. So, yes, people are still looking, definitely. And also, even the tombs we have, like, Tutankhamun's tomb we know where it is but recently it's been suggested that it might be bigger than we thought and that there might be other tomb hidden behind the walls so even where we have tombs people are still making suggestions that there might be more there that we haven't yet found that's amazing that sense of discovery it is it is although also at the same time I have to say we're also becoming slightly less happy to go out and look for 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 cemeteries and um dead kings that this is this is definitely how Egyptology started out. People were, all, well, treasure seekers. Um, that's basically what they are. Today, we are far more inclined to want to find cities. So I think, although it is fantastic, obviously it's interesting to find a dead, a dead pharaoh, I think most Egyptologists would be far more interested in finding a city where they'd lived or finding the written records that they'd left us to tell us about their lives. Um, because there's a growing sense that, that these people were, were people as well. And should we really be going and digging up their graves or should we be leaving them? It's, it's something that the early Egyptologists didn't think twice about. They just went for it. They, they wanted to find treasure and they looked for it. And they almost disregarded the, the bodies. But today we're far more, I think, compassionate towards the dead as well and really questioning exactly how the way, right way to proceed with this is. Because Egyptology is a growing subject, um, which is another thing that makes it fascinating. I've got two questions here, but I'll start with one and move on to the next one, if you don't mind. So the first one, talking about treasure seekers, because I think that's picked up a lot on, in again, in popular culture, um, is 
John Sharman on Twitter has asked about how many different tombs have been ransacked. Do we know? Because don't want to have lost so much treasure, so much valuable insight into the period. Yes. And again, it, it's a really difficult question to answer. We have a, a very strong feeling that all the pyramids have been ransacked by the start of the New Kingdom, so that they were probably emptied then. Because everybody knew there was so much treasure associated with them. And while the kings themselves, the pharaohs, were very wealthy, the ordinary people aren't particularly wealthy. And all societies have people who will who will steal. The Valley of the Kings, which I think people will be familiar with, has got a very interesting history. Because the New Kingdom kings were buried there. Tutankhamun obviously was buried there too, but his tomb was lost because there was a flood in the valley and um, a deposit of mud went on top of his tomb and it couldn't be seen anymore, so it's kind of forgotten. But the other tombs weren't affected in that way. And while there was strong rule in Egypt, this was fine because they could protect the royal cemetery. But there was a point where the end of the New Kingdom, the pharaohs didn't have such strong rule and they moved to the north of Egypt, leaving the Valley of the Kings obviously behind. And they didn't guard it as well as it should have been guarded. And people started to steal from the royal tombs. And so what happened eventually is that the priests, the priests of Ammon, opened up the royal tombs and emptied them. And they took out all the grave goods and all the pharaohs. And they actually stripped off the pharaohs and they took all their bandages and all their amulets and charms that were wrapped within the pharaohs off them, wrapped them up again, labelled them and put them together in groups in, in the Valley of the Kings. Um, the idea being probably that if you took all the grave goods away from the pharaohs, people would no longer be tempted to try and steal from the pharaohs. And, and in a way it worked because we now have these royal bodies, but they've already been stripped, but not by archaeologists or even by modern thieves. They've been stripped by the people at the end of the New Kingdom. The, the Egyptians themselves were also opening the, these tombs and stripping them, either because they were thieves or because they were trying to protect them. Tutankhamun escaped because he'd been lost, so he didn't get stripped off and, and repurposed. Also, the priests then, of course, had all the assets, all the all the surviving tomb goods that they went to the priesthood, so that it was a win-win situation for them. It saved the pharaohs, but it gave them a, a lot of income for doing it. So it's a really difficult question. Um, yes, I, I would absolutely agree that the first archaeologists are, are basically tomb robbers, but there's been a long, long history before that. So the other question I really wanted to pick up on is, we've had one another one on Instagram, which was, what have we learned about the pharaohs with current technology? How has our modern understanding changed? I think the modern understanding is most appropriate when we're looking at actually mummy studies and looking at the bodies, um, because these days we would not unwrap mummies we wouldn't need to we wouldn't do it anyway i think because if you unwrap a mummy it's destructive you're never going to be able to put that mummy back together again and it's invasive and it's disrespectful but we can use um imaging technologies and scans and so on to look beneath the bandages and see what's happening there so that is one fantastic way we can find out about the health of these people without actually having to disturb them very much and i think for me that's that's the best advance because it does save the bodies for the future we also have better ways of finding tombs so we have like satellite egyptology which is a whole probably a whole new pro program for you actually but um a very uh, using satellites to scan the desert to see what's going on um we have ground-based 
scanning systems as well, which will help us to, to find things. We're no longer dependent on just turn, turning up in a valley and looking to see where we think that there might be somebody buried. We have other ways of seeing beneath the ground before we actually do that, and that helps. But again, I think um, where we would like to work is really to look at their lives and not their deaths. Um, because this is really where we're lacking, isn't it? Because we can tell this in this podcast that I've been able to talk quite a bit about dead pharaohs, but not a lot about the lives of the pharaohs. And what we'd really, really like to know is what their lives were like, um, if we could find more evidence for that. And I'm not sure at the moment that that, um, technology is helping us in that quest, but as archaeology advances all the time, then I'm sure that it will do. Based on that, my question for you would be, do you have a favourite pharaoh or one that's most significant to you whether that be because they're truly terrible or whether that's because something they've done in their lifetime or something that's happened to them in their death has been particularly interesting well I'm a huge admirer of her checks at the female pharaoh um just because she was so different we don't know how she became pharaoh I mean I have said that it's possible for a woman to be pharaoh but only under very exceptional circumstances Um, But she manages to persuade people that she should be crowned king. She rules alongside her stepson, nephew. But um, basically for 20 years, she is the king and he's just a boy growing up alongside her. And she does some really interesting stuff. She doesn't go out to war like previous pharaohs have done, but she does trade missions. She has some beautiful building works. And particularly her mortuary temple is a beautiful and original building. And she just seems to be a breath of fresh air. Um, and then when she she dies, it kind of goes back a bit to how it was. But I think she's inspiring to lots of people because she shows what is possible. But it is very interesting because earlier I was saying that the pharaohs have a very standard way of presenting themselves. And so because she was a woman, yet she was a pharaoh, she was a king, she presented herself, she looked in her art exactly like a man, like a male pharaoh. So before we could read the hieroglyphic inscriptions, we thought that her art was showing a man. And when Egyptology started to be able to read about her, they were really confused at first because they had images of a man and texts that related to a woman. And it took some time to unpick her story and work out what had actually been going on. But to me, I think she's such an interesting individual. Um, And we know a lot about her, but there's clearly a lot more that we could know about her as well. She sounds like a really fascinating character. Yes, absolutely. I think so. To finish, this is going to be my final question for you. It's a bit of an interesting one, but we've got this has come from Ian William Doherty on Facebook. Is how much real life history actually goes into the popular media we see about pharaohs? I think we see them so often in films like The Mummy and not that kind of thing. But how much history actually goes into that? It varies so much um, because sometimes the truth is, I have to say, it's slightly dull and it's not going to make a brilliant film. So if you're going to make a film like The Mummy, you obviously are going to have things like mummies coming back to life, which are clearly not right because this clearly doesn't happen. And that's completely understandable. What what slightly um, perplexes me, and I'm talking because I'm quite old, I'm talking about the original Mummy film, um, not the more modern version. They had five canopic jars, whereas in ancient Egypt they had four canopic jars. And I can't think of any reason at all why they would distort the history, the archaeology, just that little bit. It seems odd because people pick up from these films. They sort of start to learn about ancient Egypt from them. 
and they have trouble distinguishing between what I mean everybody knows that the mummies didn't come back to life that's very clear but if they start to look and think oh are there five canopic jars are there four that sort of misinformation is kind of irritating to professional Egyptologists because then we get students coming to university who've got who've misunderstood things slightly so it varies it even varies within the film I think the thing to remember is that if you're watching a film, it's it's great entertainment and very interesting, but um, probably to read about it in, in a book is probably the better way of doing it. A book with references that tells you where the information is coming from. And also these days, the internet's such a great resource. A lot of museums that have Egyptology collections, you can go into the collections and you can look for yourself. You can look at the artefacts and read up about them. So you don't even have to rely on a filmmaker or an author um, and I would really recommend doing this. I'm always telling my students to do this, to, to just go online, look at a fantastic collection of Egyptology and, and really enjoy looking at the objects that the Egyptians themselves have left behind. That was Professor Joyce Tilsley, archaeologist and Egyptologist at the University of Manchester. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. 